Today, I interview Dr. Rita McGrath. Rita is recognized as one of the top management thinkers in the world and is a professor at Columbia Business School. I talked to her about her recently released book, Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Exponential Organization Podcast. I'm your host, Lance Pepler. The purpose of this podcast is to bring you thought leaders from around the world, giving input into how you and your organization can grow exponentially. This show is sponsored by IdeaStorm, a leading exponential growth consultancy. They can provide services ranging from an hour advisory call with a network of over 5,500 consultants worldwide through to the 10-week Exo Sprint. Visit www.ideastorm.co.za to find out more. Won't you do me a favor? If you like this podcast, won't you tell others about it? That would be fantastic. Now on with the interview. Today, our guest is Dr. Rita McGrath. Rita is the best-selling author, a sought-after speaker, and a longtime professor at Columbia Business School. She is widely recognized as a premier expert on leading innovation and growth during times of uncertainty. Rita has received the number one achievement award for strategy from the prestigious Thinkers 50 and has been consistently ranked one of the world's top 10 management thinkers in its biannual rankings. As a consultant to CEOs, her work has had a lasting impact on the strategy and growth programs of Fortune 500 companies worldwide. Rita is the founder of Elise, a company focused on helping organizations to go, go beyond the innovation theater by developing tools to implement the discovery-driven growth approach, which I'd like to talk to uh, Rita about. Rita is the author of the best-selling The End of the Competitive Advantage, and her new book, which is going to take up most of the podcast, is seeing around corners, how to spot inflection points in business before they happen, which is vitally important today. So welcome to the podcast, Rita. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Rita, where am I speaking to you from today? I'm in Princeton, New Jersey. And can you tell me one or two things about Princeton, New Jersey? That's wonderful for if I ever go and visit it. Oh, um, well, the university is <laughs> beautiful. The university yes. campuses are lovely. Um, but um, my children would tell you that the best sandwich shop is a thing called Hoagie Haven. <laughs> and we, we have a number of quite historic um, battlefields, cemeteries, you know, interesting places to visit around here. Um, so thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. And thank you so much for writing your book, Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. So, Rita, how did you come to write the book? Um, well, my previous book was about this notion that competitive advantages are temporary or transient. And when you, you know, formerly we'd thought about a competitive advantage as something that you put into place and then you exploited it for a long, long period of time. Um, and what motivated the past book was this recognition that in more and more parts of our economy, that just isn't true, that, you know, you have competitive advantages that are very difficult to defend for a long time. Um, so what you need to do is really get comfortable with the whole life cycle of a competitive advantage. And then that naturally brings you to the question of, well, when, you know, when does, a, when does an innovation turn into a lasting advantage? And when does the lasting advantage begin to erode? And that got me thinking about Andy Grove's work on strategic inflection points back in the, back in the 90s. Um, and he defined a strategic inflection point as a force that creates a 10x change in something about your business. Um, mm. 
And his book was really about how you cope when you're right in the middle of an inflection point. And that got me thinking about, well, um, you know, how would you see one coming, you know, so that you maybe weren't taken by surprise so much. And the book, the idea for the book really crystallized when a good friend sent me this wonderful article by a historian called, um, what if you changed the world and nobody noticed? And what the article's about is this incredibly long period of time that it takes for something that we later recognize as an inflection point to actually materialize. And the example he used was the Wright brothers, you know, flying around Kitty Hawk, um, mm. man flight, right? And uh, next day in the newspaper, nothing. Next week in the newspaper, nothing. Next year in the newspaper, nothing. It took years before people recognized the significance of this discovery. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, you know, many things started to fall into place. But I, what that sparked was this notion that, you know, an inflection point is a little bit like... Um, Hemingway's famous line from The Sun Also Rises when one character asks another, well, how did you go bankrupt? And the response was, well, gradually, <laughs> and then suddenly. And that's, uh, the, the, my organization that I'm part of, Exponential Organizations, really believes in the 10x. So that's where we strive to you know, create edge initiatives that could revolutionize a company by 10x. So it's great to hear you speaking about that. Now, Rita, we're going through one of the, you know, the most unbelievable inflection points in our lifetimes, probably, which is COVID-19. Could we start with the basics? What is an inflection point and how do we spot an inflection point? Right, so I define an inflection point as some external force that creates you know, a 10x change in what is believed to be true about your business. So if you think about it, any business grows up over a period of time and develops recipes for success, key metrics. Um, some people call them OKRs, you know, uh, yeah. but you know, you learn what is true about the business over, over a long period of time, you know, trial and error and successes and whatnot. Um, and then what happens is that understanding of what creates success becomes wedded in your mind to what reality is. And you tend to look at the world through that lens, right? So if I were to just take traditional retail, I mean, for, for thousands and thousands of years, traditional retail success was predicated on how well you used your real estate. So, you know, you had so, so much space and all your metrics were things like how well did this space perform compared to other spaces? How well did this space perform compared to last year? Uh, how many inventory turns did you have? Blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. So along comes the internet and all of a sudden that constraint gets lifted. And what you are left with is a whole operating model premised on scarcity of space and a whole set of new possibilities that don't have that constraint. And I think it's very hard for incumbents to take a step back from what they've always thought would be true about their business and to, to look at it with those kind of fresh eyes. So how do you spot an inflection point? Um, I have a, a technique I use in the book, which basically says, that if you think about the indicators that you use to gather information about your business, they're always in three forms. So lagging indicators tell you a lot, but about things that you can't change. Current indicators tell you where you are, you know, so things like net promoter score or employee engagement might be examples there. And the most important thing you want to get a hold of is leading indicators. And a leading indicator is, is tricky because very often it's qualitative. Reasonable people can disagree, therefore, about it. Um, and one of the most tricky things about a leading indicator is that the metric for how good it is is not, was it predictive? The metric is, did it provoke you to take the right action and become prepared? 
And so when you start to look at the world that way, you start to be much more attuned to these leading indicators of what could be. Uh, and that's how being alert to that is how you uh, develop, I think, a perspective about the future where you're even, your mind is even open to the possibility that these leading indicators could come to be true. Now, we're going through, you know, one of the greatest inflection points of our lifetime, which is COVID-19. And I, I wanted to ask you quickly, do you think that's, obviously it came very suddenly on most organizations and very few prepared for it. They couldn't really see it coming. Is that going to be an inflection point that stays or do you think after the vaccine has come that things will return to normal? Well, I think what we're looking at is probably a Y shape uh, in terms of what happens after. So there are going to be some sectors that are really going to be struggling for many years because you're not going to be able to vaccinate 6 billion people, you know, quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what will happen is even after a vaccine is discovered, you know, you're going to start to see shortfalls all along the supply chain, uh, as we've been experiencing this whole time, you know, that unexpected things all of a sudden become critical. Um, and they're not the surface kinds of things, you know, that, that they're the, the things that are way down in the supply chain and that seem trivial until you actually need a bunch of them. Yeah. So the first thing, challenge is that it's going to take a while, even with a vaccine, before many, many sectors figure out what their sustainable path forward is. I don't think we're going to go back to whatever the old old normal was. Um, I think certainly here in America, the the fragility of the social safety net has been just revealed. And it's like the band, it's just been ripped off. And people are now I mean, there are questions people have on the table that were never even open for discussion as recently ago as six months. Mm. Um, you know, things like, should we have a universal basic income? Um, what are we doing about the bad jobs problem? Uh, do we really want to go back to a world of incredible income inequality and, you know, where 1% of the people literally command 40% of the wealth? And I think what you're seeing now is a real willingness on the part of many more people to take that, those questions seriously. And uh, I think I don't think we're going to go back to the way it was without a lot of very serious rethinking. So in your book, you say that you know, it's good to identify an inflection point, but it's probably better to spark an inflection point so that you can create your own destiny and you can you know, channel your business into this new way of working. Could you give us some advice on how to potentially spark an inflection point that creates something and, and drive a, a movement within you know, industry or the world? Okay, but I'm, I'm going to start with a cautionary note, right? Yes. Because um, the, the world is full of sort of first movers with arrows in their backs, you know? Mm, yeah. um, so one of the, the cautionary things is don't just be first for the sake of being first, um, because what's necessary to be successful is you have to have a ripe ecosystem into which your business is going to go. Um, and a lot of really good business ideas just worked way too early. You know, there, there just wasn't the supporting ecosystem infrastructure technology around them. Uh, a great example of that was the AT&T picture phone. You know, they, they <laughs> showed off this thing in 1964. They launched it in 1970. Um, and, you know, they were right, right? I mean, we, 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 we now today depend on picture phones and communication vehicles and all that sort of stuff um, mm. as necessary parts of just day-to-day -day work these days. But, you know, we didn't have bandwidth. We didn't have the internet. We didn't, you know, not that many people owned them. They were very expensive for the time. And, 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 and. And so the ecosystem just wasn't prepared to support that, um, that, that movement. So to spark a disruption, um, one of the best places to start is with the inadequacies of the customer solution that is currently being offered. 
Mm. So, you know, a great example of this is the Dollar Shave Club, you know, in the shaving business. Um, and while the Gillette business, for example, was spectacularly successful, they had this business model that was R&D, better product, higher price, uh, massive amounts of mass market advertising and huge amounts of distribution into traditional retail channels. And that was all that was great. That worked for decades. But if you think about it, there's a lot of negatives uh, associated with that experience. So, mm. like, why do I have to go to a store? And then I go to the store and the razors are locked up in a razor fortress and I have to go find some employee to unlock them. <laughs> and they kind of look yeah. me up and down and think, are you actually going to pay for this? Or, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's just a really unpleasant experience. And so what Dollar Shave Club and Harry's and other direct consumer brands figured out was that for a lot of us, it's a very unsatisfying experience. Mm. So they started to spark their disruption from the recognition that using today's technologies, they could eliminate a lot of the negatives of that experience. So the high price, the razor fortress, the, you know, having to go to a retail store, the risk of running out, blah, 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 blah. Um, and the incumbents couldn't even see that. You know, again, this is a great example of being wedded to the traditional metrics that you mm. use and just not even seeing the possibility of what someone could do to do an end run right around you. Uh, and so within the organization that I'm part of, we, we talk about the corporate immune system, which I think is quite tied to inflection points in the 10x we discussed earlier, where what we kind of say is that maybe you should create an edge initiative because the, the Gillettes probably would have never invented that type of, you know, way of selling the raises that, because the corporate immune system would have rebelled against it and, and protected their income, their revenue streams, etc., do you also see that and do you think organizations should com create completely separate organizations that take, to take advantage of the 10x abilities of new initiatives and new inflection points? Well, the question of it's being completely separate is an uh, it depends question. Um, mm -hmm. And it depends on how much of the capability or the resources of the parent are you using. Um, and if it's uh, if you're heavily dependent on the parent for some kind of technology or capability, then you don't want a huge amount of separation. You want some other mediating mechanism. Okay. Um, if, however, you're starting up and you're not borrowing very much from the parent organization, then a separate entity makes sense. But the critical thing there is you've got a bridge between the two. Because if you make it completely separate, then you're just funding a startup, basically. And, you know, there's no particular reason why you should win relative to many other startups, you know? Yeah. So if there's not some relationship between what your organization does, whether that's brand or technology or know-how, um, then you're just, you're just basically putting money into a startup and you may as well just let them do that then because they're probably going to be better than you are. But a great example of this is um, Klockner, the uh, German metals manufacturing company that I talk about in the book. And what they did was they realized that their digital initiatives were just going to get buried if they tried to do them back home in Duisburg. And so they sent a couple of engineers to, um, to Berlin to begin to work on the digital. But they also realized that what was going to allow them to succeed in the future was not just purely digital. It was the fact that they had this deep, deep technological and engineering knowledge in Duisburg. And so they very consciously constructed bridges between the two. So they let the separate entity do what it does, which is discovery, fail fast, 
move quickly, learn at a, at a really high rate. And they let the parent company do what it does really well, which is super high science, really refined capabilities. I mean, for example, they're one of the pioneers of 3D laser cutting of steel, which can allow them to do things with steel that you, you, know, like you could never do with, um, w without that. And so I think they're a great example of a company that recognizes where you need to be separate, but also where you need to build this connectivity back to the mothership. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Narita, in the book, you talk about a discovery-driven growth playbook. And I, I know it would be difficult just to give a summary, but could you possibly try and do that for us? What, what is the discovery-driven growth playbook? Sure. Well, it starts with how you allocate resources across a range of uncertainties. And so there's some resources that are going to go into supporting your core business. There's some resources going into supporting the next generation core businesses. And then um, I talk about investing in options, which I think is similar to your edge initiatives where you're putting, you're putting options out there, which are small investments you make today that buy you the right, but not the obligation to make a bigger investment in the future. And what you're trying to do with this whole process is connect your strategy your budgeting mechanisms, your project approval process, and your incentive process for your individual people. Um, and very often in many organizations, those things are completely out of whack. They don't, they don't connect at all. Um, and then the discovery-driven part is really to say, okay, for those more uncertain initiatives, what we're going to do is plan them, but plan them in a way that is friendly to uncertainty and not that kind of competes with or denies uncertainty. So um, the, whole, the whole process uh, emerged from the study that I did many years ago of corporate flops. So I was talking of the big ones, you know, Disney, uh, Euro, Disney, um, TV Cable Week, you know, just yeah. um, FedEx's ZapMail. And, you know, these are smart organizations innovating in areas that you would think they knew a lot about. And yet when we looked at what had happened in each of those cases, those major flops. Um, what we had was untested assumptions taken as fact, very few opportunities for low commitment testing, leaders who went into it with it, you know, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, all the funding up front. In other ah. words, they were planning as though they had a, a rich platform of experience when in reality, they were dealing with a high level of assumptions. And so what mm. discovery driven growth is all about is how do we reduce the number of assumptions we have to make relative to knowledge that we have at low cost and very quickly. And mm. I think it's an idea that has now really come into its own. Um, it, it was part of the basis for the whole lean startup movement. Um, it's part of the toolkit, I think, for how companies are going to get out of this pandemic. Mm. So uh, it's, it's been very uh, rewarding to see people really embracing it now. When I first wrote it, everybody looked at me as though I had two heads. I mean, it was such <laughs> a heretical idea. Wow. And now it's come into the much more of the mainstream. That's awesome. And is it, is it, how long do you think a company would go through that process? Is it a particular A to, you know, A to Z process that they would go through identifying these particular areas and revenue allocation and, you know, growth initiatives, et cetera? Is it a step-by-step -step guide? It is. I mean, I talk about innovation maturity. And I've actually got a measure for that, an innovation maturity scale. And it's a, it's a growth process. You know, it's, it's a process of developing an entrepreneurial mindset. And what we do notice, and this is fascinating, is that you see companies, I'll take IBM as a case in point. Um, I worked on the IBM Venturing Program back in the day when Lou Gerstner was the CEO, oh. built up a really robust way of growing new billion-dollar businesses. And it was very impressive. And then in the subsequent regimes, that capability was essentially dismantled. Um, and now the company is sort of 
you know, flailing around trying to figure out how to get the ship right again. I uh, saw the yeah. same thing at Nokia. So you have this fascinating pattern where a company gets it right, gets on the innovation um, path, develops an entrepreneurial mindset, and then you have a leadership change or somebody says, well, hang on, you know, you've got all this, this cash built up. Let's return it, quote, quote, to shareholders mm. uh, through buybacks and dividends. And then the innovation part falls away again until somebody wakes up and says, hang on, we need more innovation around here. So I one of the concerns I have with the way corporations have managed innovation is that in many entities, it's quite episodic. You know, you have a period of time where innovation, growth, new development is really high on the agenda, and then you'll have a leadership change or something. People come in that don't understand where all that came from, and they mm -hmm. start to say, oh, well, you know, if we, if we didn't make this investment, we could, you know, take all this cash out of the company. Um, and, and I think it's a, it's, it's quite problematic. Um, and that's one of the changes that I'm hoping the pandemic will help with because we're now seeing an awful lot of companies that, for example, issued buybacks and, you know, mm. took a lot of cash out, even borrowed, uh, to, to give money back to shareholders. And now they're sort of sitting around saying, well, gee, it would be really nice to have that cash to try to get through this pandemic. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, and I could speak a lot about the cash buyback situation as well. But um, I want to, I see that Columbia Business School, your business school, is offering executive access seeing around corners, um, mm -hmm. of course, on, starting on August the 26th. Um, can you tell us about this? Uh, what does it entail? And, and can anyone sign up to, to do that course? Oh, they can. Well, that is actually a little experiment that we're running, um, huh. speaking of innovating. So it's a three-hour session, um, okay. which has some content from the book. It will have a structured networking uh, approach. And I'm going to have also a guest speaker, a gentleman named David Kidder, who's the CEO of Bionic. You probably know about them. Uh, very well-known uh, innovation and growth consultancy. Okay. Um, and so it's got some things from the book. It's got some networking component. It's got this external speaker. And it's part of a series that we're developing, which is these executive access programs, which are short, you know, not too expensive, not too time consuming, um, meaning to, to make what we offer more accessible. And it's a really interesting opportunity because we, you know, given the overhead of a university and the difficulty of pulling people together in one space, offering really short courses was never something we could do before. And mm. now that we can, you know, now we've got this inflection point, people are getting much more comfortable working remotely. And our hypothesis is that there, there will be a, a niche in the market for that. The other course we just wrapped up, I just wrapped up, it's a wonderful course on women in leadership. And ah. with that format, I designed it specifically for, you know, the situation so many women find themselves in right now where they're juggling work and kids and husbands and, you know, just all kinds of things. And yet they'd still like to invest in their own development. So the way it works is uh, I run it from 11 o'clock Eastern to three o'clock Eastern with an hour break for lunch. Um, and it runs two days a week over four weeks. So oh. what we learned was, you know, I can get my partner to cover for me for, you know, three hours, basically, yeah. <laughs> uh, on two days a week. And, and I can actually do this, whereas if I required them to come to New York and sit in the classroom for three days, there's a whole population that could never do it. So we did the first uh, run of it, and it was very successful. So we're looking forward to scheduling the next one. Um, and again, there, I think we're taking advantage of the inflection point. We're saying, here's a whole population oh. of people who we could never serve if we had to 
required them to come to our campus, and yet now we can build a relationship with a relationship with them virtually. And is that also available on the Columbia Business School site? Yes. What would they search for? To find they would that. search for women in leadership. Women in leadership. Um, okay, great. I'll have the link in the show notes. What, what, when great. is that going to be scheduled? Do you have any idea? Reese? The next one is going to run next month, we're hoping. Um, I mean, I'm, September. In fact, arm, yeah, I'm arm wrestling with people about the schedule even as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing and that then just I while see. We're on, yeah. yeah, sure. While we're on, on Columbia. So the, and the other course that I write, which that I direct, which is very relevant to your listeners, is called Strategy in Times of Uncertainty, and that oh. will run in October. Okay. And that is a five-day course, which runs every day from 8, 8.30 Eastern to 1 p.m. Eastern. Right. Um, so it's a bit more demanding in terms of schedule, but it's, you know, one week, you get it, you get all the content, boom, 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 boom. And, um, and that, that's also pulling a lot from my book and my previous book. And, and then I saw you you doing something called Friday Fireside Chats. Is that still yes, continuing? And, and who will is. you be hosting? Oh, the upcoming roster is going to be amazing. Um, let me just pull it out here. <laughs> so this Friday, I've got Charlotte Jones Burton, who is a senior executive with Otsuka Pharmaceuticals, um, the founder of a group called Women of Color in Pharma, and author of some recent uh, academic studies looking at the, the case of justice and the inequity in the in the system around the treatment of diseases like cancer and so forth. So we're going to be talking about remedies for, for that. Then I've got a guy called Thomas Chamorro from Music, um, and he wrote a <laughs> scandalously titled <laughs> book and called "Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders?" <laughs> what to do? Oh goodness! <laughs> yeah, and uh, that that's going to be super super interesting. Um, then we have uh, Shelley Archambault, who's um, Silicon Valley superstar, just wrote a book called Unapologetically Ambitious, so we're going to be having her. Then um, in September, so far I've got um, Tom Peters, the manager wow. of he's booked, My yeah. Goodness. And Erin uh, Meyer, who he's a, she's a professor at INSEAD, um, and she just uh, co-authored a book with Reed Hastings about the culture at Netflix, and that's going to be coming out in, in September. Huh. So we're going to have her on to talk about her book and her longer-term work on culture. She's, uh, she's amazing. So, so that's why I've got booked so far, so it's going to be a fun lineup. Oh, I better re uh, release this interview very fast so that people can, can go to the Friday Night Fireside chats and hear these amazing people. I'll have the links in the, in the show notes so people can access it. The other thing I want to ask you is about Valise. You're the CEO mm -hmm. of Valise. Um, mm -hmm. What does that company do and um, you know, what services does it offer? So the core behind Valise is that you know, there's a lot of talk about innovation and people come to a course or they hear me speak or they go to a fireside chat and they're like, oh my God, this is great. You know, the scales have fallen from my eyes and I see the way it ought to be. And then I go back to my company and it's like, is it a spreadsheet? Is it a power? How, like, how do I actually make this happen? And so the concept behind Belize is tools, which range from quite simple ones. For example, our first real product is a team effectiveness assessment. So pretty simple. All the way to an actual innovation platform that we're developing, which you can use to manage the whole process I was speaking about earlier. Yeah. Uh, but the real purpose of the organization is to instrument and make it easier for people to implement some of these ideas. Because, uh, you know, I think even with the best of will, it's very hard to come back from a course or a session or a bit of research and actually make it happen. And so that's what Valise is all about. So Rita, once again, thank you so much for your book, Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. And I'll, I'll have the link to the Amazon site or where you can buy that book online. 
And then I'll have all the details from Columbia Business School and Friday's Fireside Chats and Belize as well in the show notes where people, how else can people get uh, contact with you? Can, can they find you on LinkedIn, et cetera? Oh, I'm on everything. Yeah, I've got an Instagram channel. I've, uh, I've got a YouTube channel. I've got a LinkedIn. Um, and of course, I've got my own website, which is RitaMcGrath.com. And that's yes. where I post a blog and, and you can find out all about speaking, consulting, you know, whatever. It's all there. There's lots of content. I also publish a monthly newsletter, which is wow. free. And you can just sign up on my, new, on my website for that. And I've got all the archives of the newsletters. So there's a lot of content uh, going back years now. Well, my show notes might be longer than your book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me Rita I really appreciate it and I, I hope you the listener found this as interesting and useful as I did if you'd like to contact me then please do my email is lance at ideastorm.co.za my website is www.ideastorm.co.za so until next week goodbye. thank you so much Rita for joining me it's a pleasure